This begins part two of Unfound's coverage of the disappearance of Camille Dardanes. If you missed part one, please find it on your podcast feed at this time. Camille Dorothy Dardanes was a 30-year-old from Las Vegas, Nevada. She was the mother of one and a bit famous in the late 1980s. On September 3rd, 1994, Camille was last seen during the day walking on Casino Center Boulevard in Las Vegas after spending the night in the detention center. She was never seen again. I'm Ed Denzel, and this is Unfound. I'm so happy to introduce to all of you a researcher and somebody who has been helping Ashley in figuring out what happened to her mother, Camille. Of course, all of you having already listened to Ashley's interview now know that we're going to be talking to Gabrielle Prue. Gabrielle, welcome to Unfound. Thank you. Let's first uh, talk a little bit about you. Um, You can say as much or as little as as you'd like to say, maybe a little bit about your background, your education, maybe a little bit how you got interested in disappearances, whatever you want to talk about education, whatever, anything that you think is relevant, uh, you can talk about it now. Okay, so I have no background in law enforcement or anything like that. Um, Professionally, I actually work with animals. So my day job is uh, dealing with exotic animals all day. I teach um, schools and scout groups. Um, I do animal shows that are educational, and I also breed hedgehogs and run a uh, exotic animal rescue. So that's my day job. But wow. Well, tell me, allowed... I, got, I got asked, tell me about some yeah. of these exotic animals. Uh, please tell us some of the exo- exotic animals you have experience with. <laughs> so I mostly do hedgehogs. That's my main thing I do all day, but I also work with sugar gliders, um, any kind of exotic, I focus on small exotics because I do live in the suburbs. So I rescue mm-hmm. uh, chinchillas, uh, tortoises, snakes, anything like that. And I do a lot of livestock rescue. So chickens, pigeons, turkeys, pigs, stuff like that. Oh, my goodness. Uh, does that? It sounds like that would take up a lot of your time. They Do they uh, need a lot of more maintenance or care than your, what we would call domesticated animals or regular animals or what? I bet. Yeah, I spend my whole day taking care of about 60 animals all together. And then uh, when I'm done all that for the night, I sit down and start working on Camille's case. Wow. That's my downtime. All right. And how did you get into how did you get into the exotic animal? Uh, How did that all happen? Uh, I grew up with a ton of animals all around me. My mom's like a huge animal lover. And um, together, we actually started our business. We originally just had a couple hedgehogs that we bred. And uh, then we got licensed. And then we started breeding a few other different things. And um, we also started a rescue, so I do a lot of hedgehog rescue and sugar gliders, chinchillas, any kind of exotic animal that's not like your typical rabbit, hamster. Um, I work with right. that rescuing. Um, right, day. and I and that's I'm glad you listed those because I probably I guess for the general public they start thinking about exotic animals. They maybe start thinking about like tigers and, and <laughs> lions or something. But you live in the suburbs, maybe that just point doesn't work there <laughs> yeah nothing dangerous we have kids in the house so okay just very <laughs> good yeah of course okay and hedgehogs they are cute animals uh, i know what they some of those others maybe i'm not familiar with them but hedgehogs they are cute mm-hmm. they're cute it's a fun job 
Okay, excellent. All right, and um, how did you get into uh, doing research? Of course, we're going to eventually talk about Camille's case, but just in general, how long have you been interested in maybe in disappearances, true crime, maybe your interests go in some other directions as well? What, what do you want to say about that? I mean, I've always been very passionate about missing people. Um, I live in an area where a lot of that has gone down. Um, I don't know if you know about Danielle Imbo and uh, Richard Patrone, really famous missing case. She was a good friend of my mom's when my mom was little. They went to high school together and she grew up on my street. So I remember kind of hearing about that when I was little. Um, And right down the street, we also have the uh, crazy Fred Newlander case with the rabbi who killed his wife. That was down the street for me, too. So I kind of grew up hearing a lot about cases like this, and I care a lot about just missing people. Um, I, I don't come from the classiest background either, uh-huh, honestly. So I tend to have a real soft spot for people like Camille who, you know, have been kind of forgotten because of their socioeconomic status or stuff like that um, because mm-hmm. they worked in sex work, anything like that. I mean, my dad was a biker. My mom used to be an exotic dancer. I I kind of look at cases like Camille's and other cases that I've worked on, and I see my own family in that. And I think, you know, imagine if that was somebody that I love that went missing and nobody cared just because they're not a perfect suburban soccer mom, you know. Um, I don't think that you have to have a perfect background to deserve justice and to deserve answers. So I kind of got really passionate about cases like Camille's. And um, while I didn't I didn't put a whole lot of focus um, on the kind of research that I do now. I did every now and then like to go onto Reddit and post in like the Unsolved Mysteries subreddit, um, just a case that has been kind of forgotten. I used to scroll Charlie Project and look for a case that nobody really cared about. Um, I notice a lot with sex workers, they go missing and you never even see an article about it. So I would post a case like that every now and then on Reddit saying, you know, here's this case. I want to kind of get the word out. And it made me happy to see you know, a few thousand or a few hundred people discussing it. And uh, that is really how I got into these cases, just trying to get the word out about little known ones. And that's what I was doing when I got in contact with Ashley. Um, I had just posted about Camille's case on to Reddit. I saw it on the Charlie Project, which is like a website that lists every missing person. And it was nothing but a single paragraph that just said like how tall she was and uh, that she went missing at her birth date. And when I read a little bit about her and how, you know, her background in Chicago when she was very famous, she was on Good Morning America. When she got engaged, um, it was covered literally in Time Magazine, her engagement. So I thought it was crazy that I could find all of that in the 80s, but nothing about her being missing. And it's just nuts to me that this woman was so famous in the 80s in Chicago and everyone knew her, but a decade later, she vanishes into thin air and there's not even a single article about it. I couldn't find anything. So that's kind of why I posted online Um, look at this case. It's so interesting that there's nothing on it. I can't find anything. And I was kind of crowdsourcing, like, does anybody, has anyone been able to find any info on this case and this woman? And nobody had, it just seemed to be completely forgotten. I mean, not even a single newspaper article, not a YouTube video, nothing. You Googled her name and all you got was her page on Charlie Project, her page on the Doe Project or the Doe Network. And that was it. And um, that was kind of what drew me to her case, just the mysterious element of it. Did you, uh, before 2017, do you think in your, just in passing over the years, do you think you'd ever heard of Camille's disappearance before? Or do you think that time that when you finally, you know, right away decided to get involved, is that the first time you think you ever thought you ever heard of her? Or do you think you go back some years or, or what? No, that was 2017 when I read that article. It was the first time I ever heard of her. And 
honestly, I would say that when I posted that Reddit, it was probably the first time almost anybody had ever heard of her. I can't, I, like, I'm not exaggerating when I say there was nothing on the internet when you Googled her name besides, um, like, newspaper archives that show information on her in the 80s. And um, that was it. There's no newspaper articles about her. There's no YouTube videos. There was nothing at all except for that paragraph on Charlie Project and on the Don't Network. Um, so right. there's really no way that I would have heard of her before. She's never been covered on TV. She's never been covered by, by a podcast, by a YouTuber, um, nothing. Okay, interesting. Um, before getting involved in Camille's disappearance, of course, you've gotten very involved in the last six years. Have you ever gotten involved in any other disappearances as deeply as Camille's? And if you have, maybe you want to talk about a few of those. If not, that's fine, too. Um, no, I've helped a few other people since then, but I never really had any um, ambition to be directly involved with a missing persons case or anything like that. I just wanted to kind of bring awareness to a few in my spare time, what little spare time I have. And um, the whole thing was kind of accidental. What had happened was I had made that post. And then a few weeks later, I got a message from Ashley and it said, hey, you don't know me, but you posted about my mom's case. And um, I'm really grateful for that because nobody ever posts anything about my mom. And uh, it seems like she's been forgotten by the world. So thank you. And I responded to her. I was excited that she reached out to me because I thought maybe she'll have the answers that I was looking for. You know, maybe she'll know where her mom last lived and the date that she disappeared and all this information that I can't find um, because I'd love to make an updated, better post about it. So I wrote back to Ashley and I said, you know, no problem. I'm so glad I could help. Um, what do you know about her case that I could add to my post? And she said, nothing. I don't know anything. She, oh, said she didn't even right. know the date of when her mom vanished. She didn't know where her mom lived, where her mom worked, nothing. Because at that time, she had left to go back to Chicago with her grandmother, and she just wasn't there. So she really didn't know anything. And um, they didn't even know that she was really missing until it had been at least, you know, seven something months later. Um, they were in Chicago. They stopped being contacted by Camille and they wondered why they were confused. Her and her grandma returned to Las Vegas, but weren't able to find any information. They reported her missing, but I mean, that's about it. There was no real investigation. There wasn't really any information given to Ashley. So she had no idea. She said, you know what? I've been wondering the same things you're wondering. I don't know when she vanished. I don't know where she lived, where she worked, who she was living with. So that's kind of when we decided that night as we talked, we stayed up till like three o'clock in the morning, um, talking on the phone and texting each other and saying, you know, maybe we can find this information ourselves. Um, I don't think we had any hope of getting her name all over the media like we have or of getting any real answers or investigating it ourselves. At the time, we just wanted to find some basic information for Ashley to to know, to be able to say, this is where my mom lived. This is where she worked. This is what happened to her, maybe. Um, so the first thing we did together was file uh, public records requests for the uh, police reports, the missing reports that her mom had filed, uh, Camille's mom had filed. And we got those and they were pretty useless. They were just bare bones saying this is the date she was reported missing and this is the mom's home address. So we kind of were like, well, this is a nothing burger. What do we do now? And I said, maybe they would give us like other arrest records because I was able to find when I went into the online court portal that she had a few open court cases. So there must be an arrest report for all of those court cases. So I contacted Las Vegas Metro Police Department I said, can you guys give me this woman's um, police records? Like every yeah. every article you have, every piece of paper you have about your interactions with her. 
And they were kind of annoyed by it. They were like, there's a lot and we don't want to scan it all. And I explained the situation. I said, listen, it's for her daughter. She just wants to know, you know, where her mom lived, things that went on in her mom's life, who she spent time with. And so eventually they relented and they sent me a whole giant stack, which I have here. All of this is Berkeley records. And um, that's what really started our investigation because through that, it had all kinds of um, addresses. This is where she was staying when she was arrested. This is the street corner that we arrested her on here. And it had names because in a lot of these situations, she was being arrested along with other people. So it would say, you know, the suspect, Camille Dotson, was arrested along with blank and blank. And they were at the home of blank. And so at that point, we were like, hey, now we have names of people who knew your mom. Let's find them. That became my If I could just jump in for a second. Was this all new to you? Uh, You know, filing, you know, FOIA or whatever paperwork or going into the portal. Had you ever done this for any other work and anything you'd ever done before, like 2017, 2018? Nope. And I, I really didn't know what I was doing any more than Ashley did. But the, I think the the reason that I'm good for Ashley is that she's very, um, like, she's very shy. She's very sweet. She doesn't like annoying people. She gets really uncomfortable if she's like bothering or harassing people. Mm. And I'm very like, I'm obnoxious. I'm from New Jersey. Uh. I'm a Jewish girl. When you're a Jewish Jersey girl, you're not afraid of bothering people. So I will blow up that police station's phone every day going, can you give me these records? Can you give me these records? Can you give me it? And eventually they relent. And um, Ashley kind of is, is like, I don't want to bother people. She feels bad. So um, I didn't know any more than she did. I'm just a little bit more annoying, I would say. So I'm okay. able to kind of bother right. them until they give me what I want. Um, but no, I have no real experience doing any of this. I was just figuring out as I win. Um, when we had these names from the police records, I was like, we need background checks on all these people so we can get current contact info. And that's where we found this amazing woman named Lori. She's what you call a search angel. She helps people who are adopted find their biological parents and biological parents find their children who are adopted out. So through doing that, she knows how to do all the background check apps and how to find people um, and their current contact information. And so she reached out to us and said, I would totally help you guys and teach you how to use all these apps and do background checks. So she came in, she taught me how it all works. And through that, I was able to track down a lot of the people mentioned in these reports. Um, and some I can't, some I can't, it's really hard. And that's because the people that Camille was around, when you're homeless, when you're struggling with addiction, when you work in any form of sex work, um, and when you're around um, a lot of people who are in like a tourist nomadic kind of area, Um, You're around a lot of people that come and go, that end up faraway places that are only there for a few weeks, things like that. Um, So a lot of these people who we're trying to track down, we realize some are homeless. A lot are in prison. A lot are uh, dead, unfortunately. So I've had to do a whole lot of of work with stuff like that. Like the one lady we found was in prison currently. I'm like, I don't know how the hell to make prison calls. I've never done this before. So I had to download some app. And then it was like the prison contact app. And I had to pay all this money in order to send her a message saying, hey, I'm looking for you to talk to me about this lady, Camille. And she had to respond to me eventually and tell me I can do calls for 10 minutes a day. You have to pay for it, though. So I had to call the prison every day at the same time. And I can only talk to her for 10 minutes. And over the course of a week, we talked every day. And I was able to get some good information from her about everything she remembered about Camille, where she was staying, people she hung out with. Um, just things like that. And 
Other people have been homeless, so it's hard for us to really get in contact with them. What I was able to do, though, is talk to all of the homeless shelters in Vegas and have them hang her missing poster up like on their little um, cork boards in all the shelters so that if there's somebody there who knew her, they would know that we're looking to talk to them. And if somehow, you know, we don't we don't think so. But if somehow Camille could be alive and maybe is homeless or off the grid, that she would know that we're looking for her. Um, so I did that to hopefully maybe find any homeless friends to be able to contact us. Um, and other people I found have been deceased. So I've reached out to their children, to their nieces, nephews, just to ask, you know, do you remember your uncle or your dad having this woman around? Things like that. Most of the time they say no. But every now and then I might have someone who says, yeah, I remember her. Um, and that's helpful to me, too. Like I said, we don't have a ton of information here, so I will take any little paper I have and milk it to the last drop, even if that means contacting 100 people and only having one person reply and give me good information. You know, everything everything means something to us, no matter how small it is. Um, when we started, we didn't even know where she was living. So all of these papers and all of these names have really helped us kind of rebuild her life at that moment and kind of figure out the places she was at, the people she was with, the things that she was engaging in. Um, another really hard thing is that a lot of people were using fake identities. We've learned that Camille's friends around her had a habit of stealing um, wallets from the tourists in the casinos, and they would use their ID. Um, the one time I was so yeah, happy. I talked about that. Yes. That yeah. Camille did I tracked that, yes. down. I tracked down this woman mentioned in the final police report, her final arrest report. It talks about a woman named, and I tracked this woman down through her name and through, um, the birth date and all that on the police record. I found her, I called her and she said, yeah, this is Deanna. And I started telling her, you know, about Camille, about what I'm doing. And she was like, I've never met that woman and I've never lived in Las Vegas. And I'm like, but your name's on here with your birthday. And she said, I was in Vegas one time for a week in 1989. I've never been there again. And the more we talked, the more she like recounted everything that happened to her in Vegas. She mentioned her wallet being stolen in one of the casinos. And I was like, oh no. The lady who was arrested had your ID right. and was using it as a fake name. So now I have no idea the real identity of the woman who was actually there with Camille the night that she was arrested for the last time and probably would know so much that could help us. But I don't know who she is. I only know the fake name that she used. So you, you, things like uh, that makes it really hard. Uh, what about, uh, you know, uh, going back... If did they ever take any pictures of Camille when they arrested her, you know, doing the mug shots and all that stuff? Is there a possibility that something like that could still be gotten all these years later? Um, I've still been trying to figure it out with them about this Deanna woman. I'm not getting a whole lot of help from them. They're a little bit more helpful when I contact them about Camille because they know at this point that I'm working with the family and that I'm contacting them as a representative of the missing woman's family. But they're not as helpful when I contact them about other suspects or people you know, tangibly related to it. They're kind of like, yeah, we can't give you that information because that person's not involved in your case officially, so we can't help you. Um, but I have been trying to push them to look into that file and see if maybe they could have a mugshot or fingerprints or something on that woman. Um, but I do know they have a single mugshot left of Camille. They only saved that because when she went missing, they needed a picture to use on her missing flyer or whatever. Um, but I don't believe that they have that for Deanna, but um, I'm going to keep trying to see if I can get any information from them. Um, they're really inconsistent about a lot of things. For a while, they said that the first report was gone and they didn't have it at all. That's what they told Ellen when Ellen contacted them. Um, and then when I filed my public records request, they sent me the first report. So, I mean, I don't know. 
if they don't know what they have or if they're lazy and they just say no because they don't want to dig through files. Um, but it's been really inconsistent. So for right now, I'm not having luck with the DNS situation, but who knows what we'll find out later. They could have something that they just haven't given us yet. Let me ask you about this uh, woman you found in prison. You spoke to her a week. What did she have to say? Um, she didn't have a ton of information. She said that they had stopped like seeing each other around 1992, but she was able to give me a list of people that Camille spent time with and of locations that um, they would stay in. She knew of homes that she would stay in when she was homeless and had nowhere else to go. Um, she knew of some of the names involved. I know um, this Kiko guy, when I asked her, she knew a lot about him. When I asked her about one of the men that Camille was living with, Alan, she knew a lot about him. So she was mostly able to just give me like a lot of context on what was going on in their life, um, what the drug use was like, um, what club she was dancing in, um, what she knew about all of the men around Camille. She wasn't really able to give me any information on her disappearance because she had no idea that Camille disappeared. Um, that's mostly why I'm contacting all these people. Not one person that I've reached out to that knew Camille knew that she was missing. Um, you got to remember, she's never been on the news. She's never been in a newspaper. Um, there's no missing posters hanging up of her anywhere until we started this. So her own friends who used to see her every day didn't even know she was gone. Unless you Google her name, you don't know it. So that's it's part of the reason though, why. It's weird, though, that they knew her and then they suddenly don't see her. And they don't suspect maybe something, you know, unusual, strange, maybe well, criminal has gone on. No, no insight into that at all. They just, well, actually just the, went around. The reason, yeah, the reason for that is that they're living like a really different lifestyle than you and I are. Mm -hmm. Everything around them is kind of nomadic. They are homeless. So a lot of times they're taking a ride hitchhiking to any other place that they can stay in. They're couch surfing different people's houses. They're not people that have a specific home and live in it and are there every day and seeing the same people every day. Um, they go to jail a lot. So with them, they tend to think someone, you know, I never see them again. They must just be in prison or they must have taken a ride and are now staying in some other city. Um, it, with them, it's not really shocking when somebody that they know just kind of takes off. They're all very nomadic. Okay. Let's talk about one uh, particular piece of information that, that was totally unknown to Ashley until you got it. And that had to do with you, somebody uh, that you already mentioned, of course, he got mentioned prominently in Ashley's interview. And that was Kiko and he and uh, Camille getting busted on September 2nd, September 3rd of 1994. This was something that was unknown until you got the paperwork. Talk about uh, the reaction to seeing that you know, Ashley's reaction, what do you remember? You know, was that something that happened very early on in you getting involved or did that happen later? What can you tell the listeners about that particular piece of information? So we figured this out in the first month of uh, working on the case together because it was in the stack of police records that came to me. And the crazy thing is when I had filed that public records request for all of her police interactions and they sent it to me, it was in chronological order. So I'm just looking at them looking for names and addresses and i'm scrolling through all of them i go several days and little did i know that this one at the end would be such a huge deal and i'm just reading through all the other mundane ones and then finally after days of doing that i see the last one and i'm so confused i'm sitting there in shock because it says september 2nd and ashley had always told me that camille vanished in june and that the last time they spoke to her was in june and the official police report on her disappearance says june charlie project on um, the doe network uh, name us all says June 
1994. And I'm looking at a paper that says she's alive and being arrested in September of 1994. So that was the main shocker. Um, and then yeah. the more I read, the more I was even more shocked because we always believed not only did she vanish in June of 1994, but that she was living with this man, Cruz Diaz, her ex-husband at the time. Now we find out that not only was she alive and known and interacting with police in September, but she was living with a totally different man at a totally different address that we had never even heard of before. So all of this was like a huge bomb. And the main thing that shocked us about it was that if the police who claimed that they investigated the case and couldn't find anything, mm -hmm. were still writing to this day that she vanished in June, despite their own paperwork saying that they had her in custody in September. That's showing us that they didn't investigate anything. They no. didn't even open their own drawer. I'm no. thinking if they didn't open their own file cabinet and look at the date on that piece of paper, in their custody, in their files. If they didn't do that, then how are we supposed to trust a single thing that they do claim that they did? And yeah. it's at that moment that me and Ashley decided we're no longer just looking for dates and places. We're going to try to like goad this police department into doing something, and we're going to try to find answers on our own too. That's when we started with the Facebook page, with making her a website, with pushing her uh, story to podcasters, YouTubers, news channels. Um, we kind of realized that it's not that the case isn't solvable. It's that nobody's trying to solve it. And that's, that's kind true. of where a lot of disappearance, the same thing. Uh, absolutely. That's a good way to put it. Uh, have you in your work in the last six years been able to determine um, why the original thought was May? Now with, with Ashley, we talked about May of 1994, May, June. Do you know, have you been able to figure out why it was May and June where that actually came from, being that the paperwork obviously says September. Where did that come from? Do you know? So we always believed that it was because her mom, since she wasn't in the area, she was in Chicago, we believed that her mom maybe had her last phone call with Camille in June. So she just told them the last time I know of her being alive was in June. Right. However, Ellen was able to go through her documents because um, Ellen, who was Camille's childhood best friend, stayed in contact with Camille's mother. And when she found out that Camille had went missing, she asked for all the information that her mom had. And thank God she did because her mom, Barbara, passed away um, a few years ago. And so we don't have her to reach out to for information. But we have Ellen who got all the information Barbara had and actually sat and took notes on every phone call. And so she was able to recently go through her garage and find her box of documents. And she actually had all of her notes still saved to this day, 20 years after taking them. And she scanned all of them for us and gave them all to us. And when I'm looking at it, I'm seeing this timeline she's writing down that her and Barbara mentions a call in December and um, September from Camille to her husband. So we know that Barbara's husband was on the phone with Camille in September. So now I'm even more confused about why it ever said June, because not only do we know she was arrested in September, but we know yeah. that she spoke to her dad in September. So I just so, think that the police well, didn't look into it at all. But we don't know if that's because we're, once again, we're thinking if we're still sticking to this September 2nd, September 3rd, and we know, you know, and then we had, she had this court appearance that she didn't appear at later in September. So we have like three weeks in there where we don't know anything. Of course, it's accepted something happened to her before uh, the end of September, but we don't have an exact date when this call happened in September or not. We don't. 
it only said September, but I would assume that it was in the three-week period of her disappearance because oh. she was arrested on the second. So unless she called the day before, yeah. and that's one day out of 30-something, um, yeah. then I would say chances are it's in those three weeks. And by the way, that three-week period is also a brand new piece of information that we have because her court records that show when her dates were and whether she showed or not are not public record. But the police officer that was assigned to her case, which we also only got accomplished um, in the last three years, um, her case being reassigned to a cold case detective. And he's been really helpful. He was able to go through the documents that aren't available to the public and to give us the information on the court date that she did not show up for. And he also was able to look back at all of her other court dates and was able to determine that she had never missed a court date before. Um, so because of that, we all pretty much agree that she had to have vanished in that three weeks. Um, yeah. And that was a huge deal because at, before that, we went from not knowing any time after June to any time after September 3rd to now finally having solid three weeks that she had to have vanished in. Right. Um, so you have this paperwork. Uh, what about, of course, we're talking about all this government paperwork. In What about... Uh, is there any chance that she went back to once again the crazy horse or wherever else oh you know would those records be long 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 gone uh even sometimes strippers pay taxes and things like that is that totally out of the realm of possibility of you figuring out so, first, just as an example what if we were to find out she went back and worked and she you know there was some sort of pay stub or something that was like Dated mm -hmm. September 19th. So I do, I do have that information because I posted in Las Vegas Facebook groups asking for anybody who was ever associated with the Crazy Horse, the Crazy Horse 2 um, in the 90s to please reach out to me. I found a woman who used to dance there and she knew the manager who was in charge of the place during the era that Camille worked there. And the manager said she knows she has the documents somewhere that show exact days that people quit, um, but she's not sure where and she will look. What she does remember is that Camille worked there not for too long, just for a little bit, and then just stopped showing up one day. Um, so we know that she didn't return to work there. We believe that after she quit that job, she moved on to um, just, you know, on the street sex work. And that's what she was doing for work um, around the time that she vanished. Um, before that, she worked in diners. She was a bartender. She was a cashier in like a, um, a grocery store or pharmacy, something like that. Um, but it was hard for her to make money because when she was with her husband, Gary Dotson, she had always planned to be a stay-at-home wife. He wanted to be a contractor and was going to work to support them. And they had some extra money because of the fact that the woman who had falsely accused Gary of rape yeah. had written a book and she gave the proceeds to Camille and Gary. So they were pretty financially secure at the time. And she planned on just staying home and raising her daughter. And then when Gary was abusive towards her and she had to run away, she had to be a single mom. She had to get a job and she was working these like minimum wage jobs, waiting tables and working in diners and stuff like that. And it just wasn't enough. And since she was such a pretty girl, um, she got approached to dance in uh, like topless clubs and she made good money with that. And that went well for a while. And the sex work stuff came about much later, um, like in the mid 90s after they had moved to Vegas. And that was mostly just out of desperation um, when everything else was failing and she was struggling to keep a job because she was dealing with addiction. Um, and I'm not surprised she went to addiction when you have that kind of trauma. I mean, she'd now been through two extremely abusive marriages and was a single mom. And it's it's a hard life. I'm not surprised that she 
developed a severe addiction and ended up starting to do sex work in order to pay that. Um, but before that, we know she did work at the Crazy Horse for a little bit and also at the Crazy Horse too. And both of those were involved with mob activity in Vegas. So we've always been kind of suspicious of that. Like maybe, maybe there's some off chance that she could have been involved in something or knew something and somebody would have hurt her. I think personally, that's the least likely possibility, but it's a possibility. So we haven't discounted it, um, especially because when her Rolodex, when we went through it, one of the phone numbers that said Dimitri actually takes you back to the FBI, the local FBI office in Vegas. So the fact that she had a number in there that she was calling that goes to the FBI leads to believe that she was an informant on someone. And that could be mob related, but it's far more likely to just be her flipping on a drug dealer or a pimp or something like that. It's very, very common, especially in those days for when addict or a prostitute was arrested for the police to say, hey, we'll let you go, you're small potatoes, if you give us info on that big pimp or that big dealer or something like that. So I think that's the most likely situation that she was just giving them info in order to not go to jail on something. Um, but it's always possible that it could be related to the uh, mob things that occurred at the Crazy Horse and Crazy Horse 2. Uh, any chance you could ever, I mean, how many Demetrius can be working for the FBI? Have you ever been able to track this guy down? To ask him why I mean, I've looked, his phone number. I, I actually bought a copy of uh, the Yellow Pages um, of the 90s in uh, Vegas. And I was able to search. And there were only like five Dimitris living in all of Las Vegas in the phone book at that time. Um, sorry, my dog's barking. Um, but anyway, I was thinking maybe one of them could have been the guy. And there's also always possibility that Dimitri wasn't his name at all. And that was just a code name that she had for him when she called. We don't really know. Um, but I'm hoping that we'll be able to one day find a man named Dimitri who worked for the FBI and could tell us what he was talking to Camille about. Because while I doubt he can tell us because it's probably classified information, if he knows what she was informing on, then it's likely that that person could absolutely be a person who had a motive to harm her, you know. Something that I brought up with Ashley kind of going back uh, because, once again, my understanding of this is that going back to this May or June disappearance date was that somebody had seen her on Casino Center Boulevard at that time, like, you know, May or June. And it kind of all came together because what is on Casino Casino Center Boulevard in Las Vegas is the detention the center. Yeah. So, so it seems knew. like it seems like there was two different stories maybe that came together. Yes, mm -hmm. the date was wrong, but the location was right. Yeah. You know, or so something they seemed, yeah, they seemed to know that the last time they saw her was her leaving the detention center, but they didn't seem to be able to realize that the last time they saw her leaving the detention center was in June, not May. Um, I think yeah. that they just wrote down whatever date her mom rattled off to them when she was there and didn't look any deeper into it. Um, and that's why it's so convoluted and confusing now. Right. Talk about your, because uh, Ashley and I talked about this, but you, you were the one who did it. Uh, talk about your conversations with Cruz and Kiko. Okay. So I'll start with Kiko because um, he was the one that we were really surprised about. So we didn't know mm -hmm. he existed until when we started looking into this in 2017. Um, and just to give a quick background of how Kiko's involved, um, we know that on that date, on the September 2nd date, um, she was in his house. They were staying together at Siegel Suite Apartments. And that 
neighbors had heard a crying woman being screamed at and some sounds of like smashing and yelling and things like that. Um, and they called the police and said, hey, there's a man screaming at a crying woman and it sounds like he's hurting her and attacking her. So they called 911. The police arrived. Um, to give some context on Camille's reaction, about nine months prior, a similar thing happened um, with her ex-husband, Cruz. They were at a motel together and he started to beat her and Camille called 911. And when police arrived, instead of helping her, taking her to the hospital and arresting Cruz, what they did was say, oh, that's your name, Camille? Well, there's a warrant out for your arrest. So you're getting arrested. And nothing happened to Cruz. He went to bed, closed the door, and the woman who was bruised and bleeding was lugged off to jail. So you can imagine that at this point, Camille no longer sees police as her friends. They're not going to come in and help her when she's being abused. They're just going to arrest her too. So when the police do arrive this night with Kiko in June and in uh, September, they show up and she says, please don't come in. I don't want your help. I'm fine. We got into a verbal altercation and it's all good now. You don't need to come in. I'm fine. They insist on coming in anyway because they recognize her. They know that she's a known drug user and that she is a sex worker and stuff like that. So they come in anyway. Camille tells them, I don't have any drugs on me. I swear I don't. I'm not doing anything wrong. We were just fighting and you can leave. You can search the whole house. I don't have anything. Search me. And she was telling the truth. Um, I doubt that she was actually completely clean at that point. I'm sure she was still using. She had um, addiction issues. But she was telling the truth that she did not have any drugs on her. The problem is uh, Kiko did. First, they notice Kiko, when they open the door, he's standing with his hands behind his back at like a vanity, fiddling with something behind him, messing with his back pocket. They walk over to see what he was messing with, and they see that he had taken a bag of cocaine out of his pocket and was hiding it under like a blanket on the vanity. And then when they're arresting him for that, they look by the front door, and there's a little package that says para Kiko, which is for Kiko in Spanish, Mm -hmm. um, and it had marijuana in it. So they say, all right, Kiko's getting arrested. And Camille is kind of pleading, listen, I told you I didn't have anything. You checked my bag. You checked my pockets. I don't have anything on me. So don't arrest me, too. I didn't do anything. I'm I'm trying to follow the law. I'm trying to get off drug court and probation. They didn't care. They said, nope, because you're on probation and you're in the home where drugs are, you're getting arrested, too. So she's crying hysterically, it describes in the police report. She doesn't want to go be arrested. She's been going off her court date. She's trying to get off drug court. And just because she's homeless and staying with a man who happens to have drugs in the house, and we know for a fact that they're his drugs, they were in his pocket and by his door with his name literally written on it, somehow she ends up arrested too. And they're both arrested. She's released the next day. We don't know where she went. Um, My thought was that wouldn't she likely return to the place where all of her stuff was at Kiko's house? You know, if all of her things were there, her clothes, wouldn't she go back there? So that's why it was so important to me to talk to Kiko. Um, I had reached out a bunch of times on Facebook. I got nothing. He wasn't answering me. Um, I later realized that he wasn't answering me because he seems to lock himself out of Facebook all the time. And he has literally 25 accounts. So eventually I get his phone number through a background check app and I call him. And he answers very aggressively when I start saying, you know, I'm calling about Camille. I want to know if you remember her. But he calms down in a little bit when he realizes that, like, I'm not police and I'm not accusing him. I'm telling him, listen, I know you know this woman. She's my friend's mom. We just want some information on what you remember about her. He calms down and he starts being pretty nice to me. And he told me that um, he does know her. He did live with her, that they weren't a couple. He claims they weren't a couple. Other people claim they were. We don't know. 
Um, and he said that the last time he saw her, she was getting in a car with her um, ex-boyfriend, Cruz. And um, he gives a date for that that we know for a fact is wrong because he says it was like yeah. 1989. And she didn't yeah. even live in Vegas till the 90s. So we right. know he's wrong about the date, but he got the name right of Cruz. And he even described what she was wearing. So, I mean, he might be completely full of it. But there's also a chance that after this arrest, she really did leave and go back with Cruz. We don't really know. Um, but he gave me everything that he knew. And then he said, you know, I don't have any more information for you. Bye, basically. And he hung up on me. Um, but by the end of the conversation, he was being friendly. He wasn't aggressive anymore, even though he was quite aggressive and threatening at the start of the conversation. Um, but we we really weren't able to get anything out of him besides that. However, um, when I reached out to the police after that saying, hey, I'm in touch with this man and I'm wondering if you can interview him. They said, no, we can't just roll in and grab a guy off the street and make him come be interviewed. Um, but then about two, three months later, we got a message from one of his relatives saying, hey, I just wanted to let you know. I see you post all the time. and You mentioned Kiko's name. Kiko's in jail right now for a domestic violence incident. So if you wanted, you could probably have the cop run right to where he is in jail and get an interview for the first time in this. So I immediately called the cop and he actually said, you know what? You're on the ball. We're doing it because uh, while I can't go on the street and pick him up, I can go down to my own jail downstairs. So we went down and they were able to interview him for, I believe they spoke for almost two hours. They're not able to tell us everything that was discussed, but he said that it went well, that Kiko gave him a lot of information, a lot of different avenues to go down and that they talked a lot about the credit card and ID scams that went on around then. And they were trying to see if maybe that could have anything to do with what happened to her. Um, but I wouldn't say that Kiko's ruled out as a suspect because he has a whole lot of violence in his past. Um, he just he just does. He has a lot of domestic abuse charges and multiple women around him have had um, bloody ends, though I'm not sure that it has anything to do with him as much as just um, the way that they live and the people around them. But it does seem that violence tends to follow him. So I'm not saying that he's ruled out. I'm just saying that he has been cooperative, unlike Cruz, who has not been cooperative at all. Right. Uh, it, I agree with you that after he probably had not been asked about Camille in like since maybe 1994. And so just out of the blue, you calling him, him not knowing that you're going to call him and you ask him about Camille and he just pulls Cruz's name right out of the air. Probably somebody hasn't thought about for all that time. I'm inclined to believe him. Now, whether that's the actual day of the disappearance or a week before or a month before or something else, I don't know. But I certainly believe that that happened at some point. The Cruz was at his place, got Camille and left. I mean, at the time to me, what it seemed like is that he was just like, I'm going to pin it on Cruz. And I would have been more likely to distrust him if Cruz was also cooperative and honest. Yeah. The Cruz has been the opposite of cooperative and honest. And the talk more I look that. into Go Cruz. Go ahead, talk about that, yeah. please. So Cruz, um, if it has been talked about already, was Camille's second husband. They got married in December of 1993, and they lived together in this place on uh, Bridger Avenue, like a little apartment. Ashley lived with them for a little bit. She remembers Cruz being really intimidating, being aggressive. She remembers him breaking her mom's nose and sexually assaulting her. She remembers a night when her mom just ran out of the house with her in her arm, like in pajamas, because they needed to get the safety away from this man who was going crazy on them. And uh, it, it was all bad stuff, what 
Ashley told me about him. So I began researching him myself, looking at background checks, looking at his criminal records. And the criminal records in Vegas alone were really bad. We read that in 1989, he stabbed a man to death over $5. Literally a $5 drug debt. He pulled out a knife and stabbed the man to death. They arrest him for it. And he only gets sentenced to three years in prison. After stabbing a man to death, he pleads guilty to involuntary manslaughter and only gets in for three years. So then I find another one in 1999 in Vegas in which over $130 that he was trying to steal from a man, he gets angry and starts stabbing the man. And he thinks the man is dead. The man hears him saying he's dead. We have to ditch the body. They drive out to the desert, leave the man in the desert and then drive off. The man survives. He's still there, just barely conscious, and crawls to safety and tells police what happened to him, and they arrest Cruz. This time, he's arrested um, and sentenced to seven years in prison. I don't know how long of that he served, just that it was seven years for attempted murder. Um, so I already knew this guy was bad, um, especially after seeing Camille's police records on reporting him attacking her. But then I filed for his police records in other places that he lived, because somebody told me he lived in Utah for a while. So I contacted Salt Lake City for their police records, and they sent me two. And it was so too. So you saw they're so bad. Um, apparently, he had a girlfriend in 1996 in Vegas, and he was so abusive to her that she took off and moved to Salt Lake City to stay with her father, um, specifically to escape Cruz. Mm-hmm. Cruz eventually convinced her to give him a bus ticket and come out with her. And he was saying, you know, direct quote, I'll be good. I'm better uh-huh. now. I'm not going to hurt you. Uh-huh. She trusted him. Yeah. She gave him the bus ticket. He came out. And within a week of being in the Salt Lake City with her, he randomly, viciously attacked her and beat her head in. And they called 911 and arrested him. And at some point, he ends up finding yet another girlfriend and moving in with her. And while he's living with that girlfriend, he apparently literally ties her up and is holding her hostage in her own home. Um. She was able to call the police and she said, I was just released from being tied up and strung up in restraints in my house. And she was covered in ligature marks. She had bite marks on her body. She had bruises everywhere, cut scratches. And she called police and reported it and they arrested him. And uh, I believe he was booked originally for like attempted murder and for like kidnapping. But that stuff must have been dropped because within two years, he was back in Las Vegas. And that's when he committed that second attempted murder stabbing incident. So I know this guy's a bad guy. Like, objectively, everybody can agree on that. Um, But I start trying to contact him. I text his phone number, and he never answers me. And then I find online that he has a girlfriend on Facebook, and he's tagging her and stuff. So I reach out to the girlfriend, and I say, hey, I'm not accusing your um, boyfriend of anything, but I wanted you to know that um, I've been trying to reach out to him about his ex-wife. And if you could maybe let me know um, a time that he could talk to me, it would be really helpful. And she writes back a few months later and says, I just saw this now. We broke up. He has a new wife. Here's her phone number. I call his new wife. Yeah. The new wife answers and she's so cool. She picks up the phone and she goes, so you're telling me that he has a wife that he never divorced and that she's missing? And I said, yeah. And she goes, give me two seconds. And she's yelling for him. She goes, Cruz, get in here and talk to this girl. And I'm like, oh, hell yeah, this girl is cool. And she makes him talk to me. And he starts telling me, I don't know this woman that you're describing. I've never met a woman named Camille. I couldn't have married her because I've never met her. And I'm like, dude, I have the marriage license. I know you married her. I'm looking at the marriage license right now. 
it has your name, your birthday, your mom's name on it. And he's saying, well, all that information is correct, but it wasn't me. So my ID must have been stolen. Now, this could be, it could pass for someone who didn't want to look any deeper because of the fact that there's so much um, identity thief going on in that circle. However, I dig a little bit deeper than that. I immediately contacted um, Camille's sister-in-law, who had mentioned to us before that Camille and Cruz had gone up to her house in Chicago and stayed there for a weekend once. We sent her a picture of this man, Cruz, that we were just on the phone with. And we said, do you recognize this guy? Nothing else. It's a, she writes, yeah, that's Cruz Diaz, the man who slept on my floor with your mother in 1993. So we're like, yeah, we know it's him. But I wanted even more concrete evidence that I could show the police. So what I did was I filed a records request for his current marriage certificate with the current wife who I had just spoken to. And when that eventually came, I pulled that certificate out. I pulled out the wedding certificate with Camille. And I looked at the two next to each other. The signature and the handwriting were identical, 100%. No question at all that it's the same exact man. And I don't know why you would lie about knowing a woman who you didn't just know, but were married to and lived with. I don't know why you would lie about that unless you harmed her and you're afraid of being connected to it. You know? Uh, yeah. And, and as you're saying all this, I'm hoping this woman, you, this most recent wife that you talked to on the phone, I hope she hasn't gone missing because He's being, okay. being a violent guy toward to women, that her getting him on the phone seems like a perfect mm-hmm. way as soon as the, the call ends that he might go after her. Well, luckily I stayed in touch with her. I, I had that same concern. I was messaging her later saying, hi, are you okay? Is everything all right around that house? Has he been acting up after you guys had that call with me? And she told me she was looking to get out of the marriage anyway, and that um, things weren't really going well between the two of them. And so she had already moved out and wasn't anywhere near him. So I I check in on her Facebook every now and then just to make sure that nothing bad has happened to her since she filed for divorce. And so far, it seems like everything's okay. So thank God, you know, that's that's a huge relief. Um, He's also extremely old. He's in like his uh, 60s or 70s now. I'd have to look for the exact age. Mm -hmm. And uh, apparently he like walks with a limp and I'm not sure he's going to be too much danger to society anymore. As uh, being that you've kept in contact with her after you actually had this call with him, uh, did she ever, did he ever say anything to her after this phone call? Oh yeah, I was married. I did know this woman, Camille or anything Mm -hmm. like that. Nope. She said he continued to maintain that he had never heard of this woman and that he was never married to her and that his identity had to have been stolen. And even I sent her the marriage certificates proving that this is the same person who signed both. And she agreed with it fully and said, I don't know why he's lying to me, but he's clearly lying to me. Okay. I want to go back to something you said uh, about this guy. Uh, and Gabriel, I don't know if you know this, but I used to live in Las Vegas. Uh, in mm-hmm. fact, my phone number starts with 702. And um, I lived there from 98 to 2011. So I guess when he tried to kill this one guy in 1999 is actually when I actually lived there. And Ashley and I, in our our interview, did talk about she lived in Las Vegas at the same time I did. But she was on the the exact (laughs) opposite side of town from where I lived. But do we know where Cruz tried to dump this guy who he thought he was dead in the desert? Because... If we're to maybe think that he did something to Camille, what would make a lot of sense is him choosing mm-hmm. the same area. Do we know where that is? 
Um, I don't have the exact information on where that body was dumped. It just says that he was in the desert and that the man crawled out on foot and went to police. But we have thought about that exact point. And um, that's one of the things that I want police to kind of look into with me. Um, I want them not only to interview Cruz immediately, because I think it's extremely suspicious. If you have a man who has a murder already on his belt, an attempted murder, and at least four horrible assaults on women, and his wife is missing, and he's never divorced her, the missing woman, and he's never reported her missing, he's never talked to police, and he pretends he doesn't know her, I don't know how you can't at least interrogate him. You know what I mean? So I've been trying to pressure them to do that the way that they did with Kiko. I may have to wait until Cruz is in jail for something else, which he will be eventually. He always is. Um, but I'm going to have to wait for something like that to happen, and hopefully when it does, they can not only interview him, but also maybe dig through their own police records and figure out where that body was dumped. Um, I definitely think the aspect of the huge desert all around Vegas is yeah. most likely the reason why we don't have any remains to do DNA testing on, because it seems like a lot of bodies get dumped in that desert and not all of them get found. It's just so remote. Um, I know that there was a serial predator in the area who succeeded in killing one sex worker and attempted to kill a second one. And this was a few years after Camille vanished. It was in like 1997. And um, I actually reached out to the son of the woman who was murdered. And um, he, similarly to Camille, has never had his mom's story written about in a newspaper or covered anywhere ever in the news. Nothing. There's nothing. Um, look, nothing. No kind of investigation to even look for the man who did this to her. Um, it just seems like they don't really care about women like this. Um, but me and him were trying to figure out if there's any connections between the two cases uh, because she also was found in the desert. And there was at least um, an other, at least other like five other women in similar circumstances who were found in the desert at that time. So I believe that if she was a victim of a serial killer in the area or if she was the victim of Cruz or anyone else, no matter what, the most likely situation is that her body would be in that desert somewhere, you know? Do we even know the name of the guy who was attacked in 1999? We do. It's in the, um, I don't know it offhand, but I have it in the police reports. The one guy's name was Kenneth, and I forget the other one. I could send them to you, though, if you wanted to read through those reports as well. Have you ever tried to contact this guy? Once again, you did say that they thought he was dead. They dumped him in the desert, but he made it actually back to civilization. He wasn't dead. Yep. So you know who this guy is. I do, though, this most recent report we only got about two weeks ago because while Las Vegas did not include this one in the report that they sent to us, um, Ellen had it in her stack of files on the case that she only gave to us about two weeks ago. So we do plan on reaching out to the man um, now yeah. that we know about who was stabbed in the desert. But right. our main focus since getting those records has been on the Rolodex because Barbara Camille's mother had her old Rolodex and she read off all of the names and numbers that were on them to Alan, who wrote every single one of them down. So my immediate focus when I, we got those records was to start trying to find those people. Um, I found some, one has already passed away, but I reached out to his children and his nieces. Um, other ones I'm not able to find because all I have is a phone number and a first name. And um, what I've done to kind of find them is buy a bunch of archived copies of phone books in that area from that era. And I'm kind of going through and typing in the phone number one by one and seeing if I can find those phone numbers, who they were assigned to then and see what those people's know. connections are to the person with the first name that's on here. Um, so that's what I've been kind of hyper focused on since we got those records. 
But when I'm done with that process, I definitely plan to also reach out to the victim of Cruz and see if maybe he could tell us where he was dumped and what right. he knew about Cruz. Because it seemed like he was familiar with him before the stabbing happened. So that might be, I that would might love be in, to talk to him. Right. That might be a good place to start a search. If you he were to say, well, yeah, I was dumped off over there near Sunrise Mountain or somewhere like that, that might be a good place to start. Mm -hmm. Right. Okay. Where does this need to go next? I mean, what, what is the next step for you in, in, in this process? So what I want and need the most is for the police to be stepping up and doing even a fraction of the work that Ashley and Ellen and I are doing every day. Um, they're literally getting paid to supposedly be a cold case division and to be detectives that investigate cold cases. But here's a cold case right here that it's not like we're at the end of it. Like they've gone down every road they can and they physically can't do anymore. So it just goes cold and gets shoved into a file cabinet. There are so many different things that they could be doing to try to find her and they're just not really doing it. Um, I know that the detective in charge right now has been a lot more helpful than previous ones. So I'm not directing my anger towards him. He's been really helpful to us and just really amazing. Um, but I definitely think that there's a whole lot of avenues that they could be going down right now such as interviewing Cruz and um, getting in contact with him that they're not really interested in doing, which I don't understand. I guess what I meant to ask is things that are under your control for you personally, you can't get the police, the police are going to do what they're going to do, but for your, <laughs> your, what you're doing, uh, you know, your research and, and everything else, what, what's your next step for what you can control? So our current goal is um, finding all of these people who are mentioned in her Rolodex. That's our main mm -hmm. focus right now, because these are people right. who we know were with her um, in the final years of her life, like 1993 and 1994. So I'm desperately trying to track down those people. Um, I've been posting all over local groups in Vegas saying, um, you know, if you know anyone who had this name and this phone number in the 90s, please reach out to us. We don't have last names. All we have is a first name and a phone number. I'm also trying to get in touch with this man, Dimitri who um, worked, supposedly worked for the FBI and was talking to Camille about something. We don't know what, but I'm sure whoever she was talking to him about has motive to harm her. So I think that going down that avenue is really important and hoping to find him eventually. Uh, I'm also working on trying to find that woman, Deanna Hulin, who was there the night that she was last arrested. Right. Um, right. I've gone down multiple roads to try to figure out who she was, but I haven't had any luck so far. I'm going to keep working on it. Um, I'm hoping that maybe somewhere in there she was arrested maybe and they, you know, put the dots together and figured out who she really was. Because I know for a fact what happened with Camille. Camille has an arrest report under her fake name, Nicole Clark. And it wasn't until they did fingerprinting that they realized Nicole Clark is Camille Dotson. So the two were merged into one. Um, I'm hoping that something like that could have happened with woman Deanna and I can find her. Um, and my other goal right now is getting in touch with um, the people down in the tunnels. You know how there's those homeless people who live down in tunnels under that? Yeah. I've been in contact with the guy who kind of runs that, and he is uh, willing to distribute flyers if I make them to people down there next time he's down there to say, you know, if any of you are this woman, first of all, in case, you know, who knows? At this point, we haven't found any remains, so we're not completely ruling out that she's alive. Um, but he's going, if you know, she's down here somewhere, or if any of you knew her in those days, since so many of her friends were homeless, um, we're hoping maybe that'll help us get us some leads. And we also interestingly got a tip of a woman who maintains that she thinks she saw her alive in the 2000s with some people who were involved with Kiko.
I don't really believe it, but I'm going down that road too. I've been looking into the house. She claims that she saw it happening. Um, I've been looking into archived Google Maps, um, Google Earths from those days that she claimed it happened in to try to confirm if the surroundings really looked the way that she described it. She said it was a greenhouse. She talked about the fence. So I'm, I'm going down that road a lot too. Basically, any tip that somebody gives to us, we're going to follow until there's nothing else we can do with it because we don't have a million different sources for information. We have a couple things and we're going to milk each one until there's nothing we can milk out of it anymore. Um, so we're doing that with the Rolodex. We're still working on that with all the names in the police reports. Um, and I'm still trying to find relatives of some of the people that we know passed away. I'm hoping maybe if this friend, you know, has a daughter, she might remember Camille being in the house. She might remember where she lived, who she hung out with, what kind of car she was driving, just information like that. Um, since so many of these people didn't even know she was missing, I'm wondering how many of them have great information that could be helping us and just have no idea that they have that information and that they could be helping us. So getting her name out has been our main goal and finding people who knew her. Um, that seems to be where we get our best information besides public records is finding the actual people who knew her in those days and getting what they remember. And Every time someone is willing to talk to me, I either record it or I take notes. I write down everything I can possibly um, find from them just so it's all on hand. And we have, you know, every single person's account of what she was like and where she was staying, where she worked, who she was around. Um, and I'm hoping that eventually we'll be able to put all of that together like a puzzle and have a really good picture of what her life was like and what the circumstances around her were when she vanished. When you toast spoke to Kiko, did he ever explain how he even knew Camille in the first place? He did not, but I would assume that it was either through prostitution because it seems that he worked um, as a pimp at some point or due to drugs because apparently he was a drug dealer. And I actually know that Cruz and Kiko were arrested together once because wow. I got Cruz's police records and Cruz was once arrested for purchasing drugs at an apartment complex that was the same apartment complex that Kiko and Camille were living at when she was arrested for that last time. So Kiko this was in January. Okay. Yeah, so January of that year, I can see that Cruz was at that address, 111 Paradise Road. Um, I can see that he was there arrested for purchasing drugs. So I know that he bought drugs from Kiko on at least one occasion. Um, so it seems they definitely knew each other. Um, but I don't know exactly oh. how he ended up moving Camille in or the context of any of that. I did speak to a man who his name's Joe Ars. He was actually Camille's high school sweetheart when they were young. And he had a good relationship with Camille's mother, Barbara. And he remembers coming out in the early 2000s to talk to the police um, with Barbara to be there taking notes because um, she was older and she kind of wanted all that information and someone else to be there with her for this meeting. And he said that the name Kiko Fernandez was mentioned during that meeting. But anyway, what I was saying is when he went there, they did talk to, about Kiko. They mentioned his name. So it seems he has been a suspect from the start. It just was never mentioned to any of us. Right. Right. So Kiko and Cruz did know each other. There's reason to believe that they did know each other. So I guess we then have to be open to the idea of maybe they were both responsible for Camille's disappearance. I guess that's, that is a, can't rule that out. No, I mean, there's nothing that we can rule out. That's the hardest part of the case. We don't have one specific suspect that we know did it. I mean, a lot of cases have that. You look at like Natalie Holloway, they know who did it. They just don't know where her body is or, you know, how it all went down until recently, at least. Um, 
But we don't have that. We have a million and one possibilities. We have the possibility that Cruz hurt her, the possibility that Kiko hurt her, the possibility that it's gang related, that somebody she was informing on hurt her because she was informing on them. Um, the possibility that it was a totally random crime, because like I said, there were multiple sec uh, serial killers targeting sex workers in the area at that time. And we know for a fact that um, statistics show sex workers are 60 to 100 times more likely to be acts uh, to be the victim of random acts of violence or murder than the average civilian is. So it's very possible that she could have just been killed by a random serial killer. And again, it's possible that she wasn't killed at all. She's out there somewhere, maybe homeless, maybe um, underground. We just don't know. There's just so many different possibilities that we we have no idea. So we just haven't ruled anything at all out quite yet. You know, ten years ago, could you have ever imagined uh, that you'd be doing this? No, it's not anything I ever really wanted to do until I met Ashley and I saw how deeply she wanted some basic answers. And I realized how relatively easy it was to get them. I mean, it's not easy in the sense that it's not very time consuming and it takes a lot of work, but it's not unobtainable. I've been able to do all this just through old fashioned like police work, through going through phone books, through calling a million different people, posting up posters and having it shared in Facebook groups and having her name said in YouTube and uh, on different podcasts and two times on the news, we just had a third news appearance that's going to air soon. So it, it showed me that there's there's ways to get these answers and police just aren't doing them. So, I mean, if someone has to do it, why not me and Ashley? You know, it's not something either of us wanted to do. We don't want to be investigators, um, but someone's got to do it. So we took okay. it on. Okay. I, I do have to ask you one thing, going back to something you mentioned very early on, and I know that I have to do this because of all the listeners are going to say, Ed, you have to ask her about this. But being that your, I guess, mother knew uh, Danielle and at least Richard, uh, any insight into their disappearances from, you know, I know it's been like 20 years now or something, it's been a while. Any insight into that being that your family is so close to at least one of their families? So um, we have no idea what happened to her. Uh, we weren't specifically close to her. I've never met her, but my mother went to high school with her and yeah. has a lot of memories since they grew up on the same road. She has a lot of memories of being on the bus with her, of uh, being in cosmetology class together, of her in the school play. She's uh, talked about her being very smart, very mature, a lot cooler than my mom was. My mom was always uh. excited when she talked to her. Like she felt like she was talking to a celebrity. She said she had the most amazing singing voice. And that she was so incredibly talented in all the school plays and was just so cool. And my mom was a little bit younger than her, I believe about a year younger. Um, so she kind of always felt like she was hanging out with like a big hotshot celebrity when she would talk to her at school. Um, but she has no idea what happened to her. Um, neither do I. There's a lot of rumors and theories that and go around. Her. I they don't I don't know. I know. I know a lot of people think that she might have driven into the river, but I can't picture how that would happen as someone who regularly drives to South Street from the same town that she was driving from. I can't think of a single place that your car could fall, you know, off a road um, or any of those bridges. So, I mean, I'm as lost as you guys are on that okay. front, but I hope uh, her family finds answers. Uh, the follow-up question, of course, is let's say that within the next year you solve Camille's disappearance. You find out that whether she's alive or deceased, it comes to some sort of conclusion. Is uh, Would uh, Richard Patron and uh, Daniel Imbo's disappearance be next on your list to give it your full all like you're doing for Camille's? I mean, I'd love to help in that way if I could, but I think there's a billion and one people who work pretty hard on that one. That's I see um, a purpose out pretty regularly. 
So I don't yeah. think they really need me. I don't think okay. I'm needed in any way. I don't think okay. any of the stuff that I'm able to do would help them. But if there was a way for me to help other people who have a case like Camille's that isn't being looked into, that needs right. to have the name being put out there, that needs to get contact with podcasters, YouTubers, the news, public records. Um, if I could help somebody like that, I absolutely would. Um, I actually have been helping one man who's making a documentary on the case of Donna Gentili, who was a sex worker murdered in San Diego. And um, I, I helped him with some background check um, to get in contact with some of the main players in that case. Uh, little things like that I do if anyone contacts me after seeing what I do for Camille's family. Um, if they ask for help, I'll do whatever I can. But there's no other case that I'm as invested in and that I right. work on this regularly um, yeah. as Camille. I do it now mostly because I grew to really love Ashley and I want to help her in any way that I can. Um, I don't really think that we're going to solve this together, but I think that through our work, I've been able to kind of bring her closer to her mom. I mean, until 2019, she had never heard her mom's voice and she was a small child. I was able to get ABC to give us the copy of her appearance on Good Morning America. And Ashley was able to hear her mom's voice for the first time in 26 years. And that alone, if that was the only thing I was able to accomplish, I would feel accomplished and done at that point, just seeing her cry and being able to hear her mom's voice and see her face. Um, that enough, I felt like that was more than enough <laughs> for my mom here. Um, I don't know that we're ever going to solve it, but I know that we're making sure she doesn't go forgotten and that somebody out there is hearing her name again today when this airs, we'll be hearing her name next week. When we have a news thing air in Vegas, people will be hearing her name and maybe someone somewhere out there will recognize that name, will recognize her picture, will have some information for us. And even if they don't, at least she hasn't been forgotten now. Um, I guess that's my main goal is to just make sure that whether we find answers or not, there's people out there doing what they can, trying to find answers, and that she hasn't been just thrown away to the curb and completely forgotten by society. Gabrielle, any final words before we complete this interview? Um, yeah, I'm just I'm really appealing to people to please share the post about Camille on our Facebook page. Please, you know, if you see people on Reddit talking about true crime, mention her case. Um, t talk about what happened to Camille, use her name. I think that the biggest danger that cases like hers have is that people don't talk about it. If you don't see a case on the news all the time, if it doesn't have its own podcast or its own series on ID network, people just don't care. If you're not one of those top 12 famous cases that everybody talks about and have its own subreddit, you just kind of kicked to the curb and forgotten. And I don't really see how that's fair. I think that every human being has a right to be looked for and that if it's you, and your family and somebody that you love went missing, you wouldn't be okay with them just being completely forgotten. Um, I feel the same way about the police. I urge them to continue to search for Camille because they may look at Camille as being somebody who doesn't have worth and who isn't important, but which by the way is wrong because everybody does. Mm -hmm. But I mean, that person who hurt her is still out there. And even if you don't care about Camille, how do you know that the next person he hurts isn't going to be somebody you do care about? How do you know it won't be your daughter, your wife, your niece, somebody that you love? Um, and you could have stopped him by arresting him now by figuring out who he is and by forgetting about it because you don't think Camille's important enough to be looked for. By forgetting about it, you're leaving him out there to do whatever he wants and to continue hurting people. Who knows how many other people he's hurt? Who knows how many lives could have been saved if we were able to find this guy once you went missing 25 years ago and get him off the street. Um, I think that it's a huge danger to society that we let any case be forgotten and thrown away because every one of those cases has somebody out there that's hurting somebody. And when we just forget about them, we're leaving them out to continue hurting people. 
Gabrielle, thank you for being on this episode of Unfound. Thank you so much for taking on Ashley's case and getting her name out there. It means so much to me and so much to Ashley too. You're welcome. And those were my November 8th and November 9th, 2023 interviews with Ashley Dardanes Padilla and Gabrielle Prue, respectively. I thank them for appearing on both audio and video for this episode. For the first time in a while, I've made a map video. Please check it out on Unfound's YouTube channel as I go through the locations that are important to Camille's disappearance. Given everything going on with Camille in September 1994, many outcomes are possible. As many as we could ever possibly list for a disappearance. Camille could have overdosed somewhere and nobody knew who she was. She could have walked off into the desert due to being despondent about her life. A sex customer who she never met before could have killed her. Cruz could have killed her. Kiko could have killed her. Some other guy she knew could have killed her. So many possibilities. Sadly, but realistically, Camille being alive now does not seem to be a very good possibility. We always hold out hope, though. What really caught my ear, however, is something we don't hear a lot on this podcast. The possibility that a husband and a lover, a husband and a boyfriend, a husband and any other guy might have known each other well enough to the point that we as the public should entertain the idea that this was not a solo effort if foul play occurred. Usually we must pick one. Why? Because usually these guys don't know about each other, and if they do, they are surely not friends. However, for Kiko and Cruz, look at the facts. Kiko bringing up Cruz's name after surely many years of not thinking about Camille at all. Kiko dealing drugs in the same complex where Cruz lived. The short distance between where the two lived at the time. And, let's just admit it, these two do seem to be cut from the same cloth. Something to think about. To really embrace this theory, though, I would have to know more about how long Kiko was in the detention center. The longer he is in there, the less likely this could have been a two-man operation if these two were involved at all. I would also have to know more about Kiko's overall history with women. Yes, Cruz has all sorts of violence on his record, but my impression is Kiko has less. Then I would like to see if anybody can figure out if the two kept in touch after Camille went missing. And did the two know any other women who also knew both of them? If we had those answers, Camille's disappearance would come much more clearly into view. Because as we know from our experience, probably most glaringly with the murder of Tyler North, that sometimes a person with murder on the mind does ask a friend for a little help. If you'd like to hear and read more of my in-depth analysis into the disappearance of Camille Dardanes, please go to patreon.com forward slash unfound podcast, sign up to partake in the unfound blog. Until then, I leave the public theorizing up to you. 
And that's the program. Right now, while you are in your podcast platform, Spotify, YouTube, iTunes, wherever, give Unfound a five-star review, a thumbs up, whatever that platform allows. I thank you for listening. I'm Ed Denzel, and you've just finished this episode of Unfound.